0: I'm reading a lecture cycle by Rudolf Steiner entitled, The Redemption of Thinking. This is the epilogue to the three lectures, uh, written by A.P. Shepard, a bishop of the Anglican Church in England, and Mildred Robertson Nicol- Nicole. Epilogue, The Redemption of Thinking. The statement of Rudolf Steiner that human thinking today is urgently in need of redemption from a materialistic world outlook to a direct knowledge of spiritual reality, and that this redemption has only been made possible by and can be rightly achieved only through Christ, is to modern minds very startling. It is important to realize that Steiner is absolutely objective and realistic and is not indulging in metaphors or analogies when he makes the categorical statement that, "...it is only the redeemed human reason which possesses the true relationship to the Christ that can win its way into the world of spirit," and that, "...this is the Christianity of the twentieth century." So, too, when he says that the essential working of Christ on man's inner life is to make possible the transformation or metamorphosis of his thought life. In these present lectures, Steiner devotes most of his time, as we have seen, to tracing the evolution of European thought, and he does not develop in detail the need and manner of its redemption. He does this, however, in other lectures and books, and it will be of value to present here the general theme of his argument. The first step in the argument is to be found in the main thesis of these lectures, namely that human thinking, which once concerned itself with the nature of the spiritual world and its relation to the physical, has now become entirely absorbed in physical phenomena and even doubts its ability to arrive at any certainty of knowledge in regard to them. (laughs) As for spiritual realities... Even if it admits the possibility of their existence, it denies to human reason the capability of ever obtaining any direct knowledge of them. That this incapacity of human reason to get direct knowledge of spirit reality should be in any way related to the fall of man is a strange idea to the modern mind. But Rudolf Steiner points out that such an idea did exist. Indeed, the idea of a fall is to be found in the pre-Christian era, in the belief that man had separated himself from the divine spiritual world, and in so doing had brought corruption to his moral nature. There was also an increasing feeling in the centuries immediately before Christendom that mankind had lost the wisdom of the past, with its knowledge of the spiritual world. From the first century before Christ there was a revival of awareness of spiritual reality in the sects of the Therapeutae and the Essenes, and later in the supra-normal gifts of the Spirit amongst the earliest Christians. During the first three centuries of Christendom this found further expression in Gnosticism, in the philosophy of Neoplatonism and in Christian theology. Chief among the Christian thinkers who strove to express the mysteries of their faith in relation to Neoplatonism and Gnostic mysticism were Clement of Alexandria and his still greater successor, Oregon. By the fourth century, when Christianity became the official state religion which required uniformity of doctrine, This spiritual awareness began to fade, and Christian thought began to be expressed in set theological formulas. More and more, Christians began to feel the contradiction between the facts of human knowledge, certified by reason, and the great Christian beliefs, which they could no longer understand, but held only by faith. It was then that Christian thinkers began to apply the moral consequences of the fall, of which the Augustinian doctrine of predestination made them even more acutely conscious, to the helplessness of their reason in the face of Christian dogma. The feeling that man's intellect had fallen began to emerge. Thomas Aquinas, however, as we have seen, dissented from this view, he regarded the limitations of man's intellect in its approach to spiritual truth not as a consequence of the fall, but as an inherent quality of man's physical nature, necessitating his reliance on faith or higher truths. With the development of natural science, man ceased to see any connection between human reason and sin or the fall reason came to be regarded as a purely human faculty, an instrument for observing and dealing with physical phenomena. As such, therefore, it had not and never could have any concern with supersensible phenomena, if indeed these really existed. This scientific skepticism about the supersensible was strengthened by the philosophical skepticism as to the possibility of human thought making any actual contact even with the realities of the physical world. For thought itself was conceived only as the faculty for constructing the images and relationships which interpret sense phenomena, and neither these concepts nor the thinking that produced them were admitted into the field of objective reality. This point of view, as Steiner shows, was sealed by the philosophy of Kant, whereby man was denied any possibility of direct conscious connection with the ultimate realities behind sense phenomena, or any understanding of himself as a spirit being. For Rudolf Steiner himself, this conception of the impassable limitations of human reason could not stand. Against his own lifelong perception of supersensible phenomena, and his discovery that human thinking far transcended the role assigned to it by science. In this role it seemed plain to him that human thinking, imprisoned as it was in the sphere of matter, was now completely implicated in the consequences of the fall. Moreover, philosophy was becoming more and more divorced from the sphere of morality, abandoning it to an uncertainty which robs human life and human relationships of dignity, security, and even of significance. Unless there was some way of deliverance of human thinking from this condition of subservience to material conditions, there could be no possibility of the human race achieving its true evolution. Impelled by the urgency of the situation, Steiner at first saw no other way of deliverance than the attempt to convince his fellow men of the reality of the supersensible and of the possibility of raising man's powers of thinking to a higher level. As a scientist, he regarded this as a prime necessity, for he felt that an honest thinker who had only the facts of sensory experience to work upon could not escape the conclusions of natural science. In his own experience, however, he knew that in man's inner life of thinking, feeling and willing, something lies hidden which does not come into consciousness in the course of ordinary life, but which can be brought to consciousness through inner soul exercises. In this spiritual element of the soul, hidden from ordinary consciousness, is revealed what in it is independent of the life of the body, and in this the relations of man to the spiritual world can be studied. One of the greatest difficulties experienced by most people in their first contact with spiritual science is that ultimately it is based upon the supersensible perception of Rudolf Steiner. Many people today would be prepared to admit the fact that Certain individuals experience states of consciousness other than the normal, but they would regard these as more or less involuntary experiences, on which a scientific explanation of the universe and man could not be based. The best answer to such objectors is to refer them to Steiner's own account of his supersensible knowledge and of the pathway to it. No second-hand account can provide the same evidence of it as his own exposition and explanation. In many books and lectures, footnote, title True and False Paths in Spiritual Investigation, title Theosophy, title An Outline of Occult Science, title A Road to Self-Knowledge, etc. End of footnote. He sets out this pathway to higher knowledge and in particular in his book titled knowledge of the higher worlds and its attainment no unbiased study of these works excuse me no unbiased study of these books can fail to perceive that the line of approach is entirely different from that of spiritualistic clairvoyance or even of mystic vision the pathway to higher knowledge is not that of trance or hypnotism, or any method by which the seeker's self-consciousness is dimmed, nor is it the pathway of devotional asceticism. It is based upon the development of the same powers of clear, conscious thinking that are used in natural science, by processes of sustained meditation upon ideas that are not directly evoked by sense impressions as for example the process of growth in a plant. In this way the powers of exact thinking are strengthened and the creative faculties of thought are rediscovered. Thereby organs of perception latent in the soul are awakened and lead to clear and conscious perception of the spirit world at ever higher levels of experience. This pathway to the investigation of the spiritual world is quite different from that of spiritualism, and Steiner emphasized this distinction and its importance again and again. The whole aim of spiritualism is the manifestation of spiritual reality in material form and to the physical senses. Its supreme achievement is materialization. In quotes. These manifestations are arrived at through mediums, acting through a bodily condition of dulled consciousness, varying from the complete unconsciousness of trance to a condition of being a passive instrument of spirit communication. In spiritual science, the path is followed by the spiritual seeker himself, in full consciousness, by developing higher organs of perception whereby he may rise to consciousness of the spirit world itself, where spiritual beings are manifest in their true environment and activity. Steiner admitted freely that many true and important spiritual facts are revealed through mediums, but he pronounced it to be a completely wrong method of approach to the spirit world, fraught with the possibility of delusion and danger. He declared it to be a fatal error to attempt to reach the spiritual world by normal, undeveloped physical consciousness, particularly with the ego consciousness in any way dulled. In the unconscious medium, the ego has withdrawn from the other elements of the physical organism, which are then used by spirit beings as an instrument of communication there is the constant possibility that the medium unprotected by the ego-consciousness may be possessed by spirit beings inimical to the true spiritual evolution of mankind. Of this effect, most mediums are unconscious, but it can be a deliberately planned deed in what is known as black magic. Moreover, The bringing of the spiritual into a physical environment makes it more difficult to comprehend, and a door is opened wide to possibilities of error and delusion. This is a danger that confronts the seeker after spiritual knowledge along any path, and it can only be safeguarded by maintaining at every stage clear, rational consciousness. This Steiner regarded as a prime necessity and he secured it by the development of pure, sense-independent thinking to the higher creative levels of thought which are not normally active in man. This enabled Steiner to arrive at a rational correlation of spiritual realities at succeeding levels of consciousness and to relate them to the facts and conditions of physical existence. It was in the light of this approach that he claimed to present a spiritual science. While no one can understand or judge Steiner's claim to higher knowledge, except by a study of the accounts he himself gives of it from many points of view, the following short sketch of certain aspects of it will help to show the clarity of thought which pervades it. By means of the organs of spirit perception developed By the exercises in concentrated meditation, the seeker is made aware of three successive higher levels of consciousness. The first stage is reached by the development of conscious thought life in concentrated meditation to a level at which the inner images of thought become as vivid and as objectively real as the sense impressions of the external world. It is an activity of pure thought, in which thinking is combined with the other faculties of feeling and will to a far greater degree than is normally the case. At this first level, the seeker becomes aware of the supersensible background of his own being and of his earthly life. In the first place, he discovers that his earthly being which he had always regarded as a single entity belonging in its entirety to his physical existence, is in reality a fourfold entity, and that what he had always regarded as the different functions of his being are really the working of these four elements of which it is composed. These elements interpenetrate each other, and to physical perception are one being in appearance and function. But to supersensible perception, they are differentiated in their functions, and also in their appearance. In the first place, there is the physical body, consisting of the mineral substances and chemical compounds which are present in manifold forms in all material objects. Then there is the etheric body, which is the bearer of the forces of life and growth, and which man shares with all living things plant or animal footnote the word in quotes, body in this context merely indicates the fact that the element is manifest to higher senses in a particular form the names attached to each quotes, body should be regarded merely as a designation and a footnote in man its forces also provide the basis of thought and memory thirdly there is the astral body the bearer of consciousness of feelings and emotions of pain and pleasure which man shares with the animal world. Lastly there is in man a fourth element, which he shares with no other created thing. It is the center of his being, and uses the other elements as instruments of its existence and self-expression. It is manifest in no form, but in an intuitive consciousness of selfhood. It is called the ego, or self. The seeker perceives that the three higher elements, while they function unitedly in the earthly human being, have their origin and true existence in higher levels of consciousness and are not affected by physical death, which brings about the dissolution of the physical body. He also makes a new discovery about the nature of his own earthly life, whereas in his ordinary physical consciousness... His life had appeared to be a succession of spatially related experiences. He sees it now in all its temporal relationships as one comprehensive whole in which each part is equally available to re-experience. He has entered into a new time consciousness in which time is no longer successional but continuous and in which all the events of his life are seen as an interrelated unity He also perceives that the same thought forces which have helped to shape his life experiences have also been present in the working of his etheric body upon his physical organism during his earthly life. This stage of higher knowledge is known as, in quotes, imagination, because it is apprehended in the form of pictures or images. It is the region of consciousness of the etheric body. The next stage of higher knowledge is reached by an even stronger effort of thought whereby the consciousness is emptied not only of all the phenomena of physical perception but also of those discovered in imagination. At this stage the seeker's earthly life presents itself to him no longer as a procession of of events but as a multiplicity of personal relationships which he perceives as interwoven with his own being. These do not manifest themselves merely as images or pictures, but they rise as experiences in his inner consciousness. At this level of consciousness, thoughts and feelings appear as veritable realities, and he experiences the relationships of his past life in a far more vital and penetrating way than he did in his earthly consciousness. He is compelled to pass judgment upon himself in regard to them and to feel himself subject to the judgment of the spirit world. For in this consciousness of relationships he also becomes aware of a world of other spirit beings around him and of himself as a spirit being which has passed already through a succession of earthly and spiritual existences. This is the soul world the region of consciousness of the astral body. This stage of higher consciousness is called, in quotes, inspiration. The third stage of higher consciousness, intuition, in quotes, can be reached only by a severe and strenuous training of thought and will. In this the will is not directed outwardly upon the world, but inwardly, on the seeker's own inner experience and on the development of his character and personality. In it he enters into the full life of the spirit world in which he experiences in direct knowledge the beings who inhabit it. What was formerly experienced as relationship is now seen to be a mutual interpenetration of being in which the self is not lost but more fully realized. This is the pure spirit world in which the ego lives free of the lower elements of its earthly existence. In a lecture in which he is attempting to give an explanation of higher knowledge by means of an analogy, Steiner compares it with the familiar stages of physical perception and understanding. In this there is, first of all, the material object, of which the observer becomes aware through sense impressions. Then there is the image he makes out of the sense impressions he receives. Then there are the ideas or relationships which he has to discover between this image and others, visible or remembered. Until such ideas awaken, he has no real knowledge of the pictured object. But when these are arrived at, the observer himself receives the known object into the inner content of his own experience, it becomes part of his own knowledge. We have a parallel to these stages of ordinary human knowledge in the three stages of higher knowledge. Imagination, the stage of image forming. Inspiration, the stage of discovery of relationships. And finally, intuition, the stage of pure knowing. What are not found in supersensory consciousness are the material object and the sense impressions by which, in the physical world, the observer is made aware from outside of the fact of the existence of the object. In the supersensory world, the process of knowledge begins from within. The observer has to begin by achieving knowledge of himself and it is in the discovery within himself of the power of his faculty of thinking let me read that again the observer has to begin by achieving knowledge of himself and it is in the discovery within himself of the power of his faculty of thinking to evoke by controlled meditation vivid though as yet uncomprehended images that he finally becomes aware that these images express relationships between himself and, as yet unperceived, spirit realities around him. Sense impressions and sensory images have been replaced by the images and relationships arrived at by pure thought. It must not be imagined, however, that the experiences of higher knowledge are abstract and unreal. To Kochsteiner himself, quote, "...the pictures of imagination have a vividness and a comprehensiveness which far surpass those of the memory pictures of the sense-perceived world. Even the gaudy and ever-changing physical world itself is a mere shadow beside the realm of imagination. But how shall we describe the world of inspiration as the second stage of spiritual knowledge is called? Nothing in the world of sense can give any idea." of its wealth and luxuriance. The world begins to express its true nature to the soul. In inspiration man is able to realize the inner nature of things. Footnote see gates of knowledge, pages twelve and thirteen and a footnote. Even more close quote as well back to Shepherd and Nicole. Even more is it true that the final knowledge Reached in intuition is a far richer experience than that of physical consciousness in which the known object becomes part of the inner soul content of the knower. In intuition it is a two-way process. It is a fusion of being in which the object of the knower's experience lives within the knower's own soul while his own being enters into the inner being of the other. It is a knowledge hinted at by St. Paul when he writes, quote, Now I know in part, but then shall I know even as also I am known. Close quote. These brief sketches of the stages of higher knowledge do not attempt to go into the details of its experience. They give no idea of the depth and extent of Steiner's own descriptions they give some indication of the clarity with which he examined and propounded the pathway to the spiritual realities which he discovered. Now, Steiner was not the first to discover in thinking these higher potentialities. They were known to other spiritual investigators, but for the most part were regarded merely as one means of making contact with spiritual reality. Steiner alone saw the inherent connection between this higher development of thought and the methods of modern scientific thinking, and by relating its discoveries to the conditions and facts of physical consciousness arrived at a thought-related presentation of all spiritual and physical existence. An objection is often raised against spiritual science that Steiner's pathway to higher knowledge is far too difficult for the ordinary man to follow. Let it at once be admitted that Steiner himself describes it as a difficult and testing path and admits that there are shorter and simpler methods of obtaining a measure of supersensible vision. But he warns us against them as dangerous. Footnote C, Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, page 69. Into footnote. The truth is that if anyone seeks direct perception of the spirit world and of his own spirit being, he needs to develop qualities in himself higher than those man normally possesses. These are not only qualities of clear thinking, but of moral character. And they are those simple qualities, such as are set out in the Sermon on the Mount, which man finds it most difficult to attain, The path to higher knowledge is not only an illumination of powers of perception, it is a transformation of personality, an alteration in the very conditions of being itself. This ethical training is a necessity both for true spiritual vision and as a safeguard against the possible dangers of spirit experience. It is also a direct means to its attainment. In our time, Steiner wrote, it is difficult for people to understand how the combating of evil qualities can have anything to do with the heightening of the faculty of cognition. But every spiritual scientist knows that much more depends upon such matters than upon the increase of intelligence and the employment of artificial exercises. Quote, footnote from Knowledge of Higher Worlds, page 104, And a footnote. He gives us, quote, the golden rule A spiritual science. For every one step that you take in the pursuit of higher knowledge, take three steps in the perfecting of your own character. Again, from Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, page 70, and a footnote. These difficulties that confront the seeker after higher knowledge are not such as debar the ordinary man from this pursuit. Erudition and scientific training. Are not preconditions for the unfolding of this higher sense. It can develop in the simple minded person just as in the scientist of high standing close footnote from the title of the book Theosophy page seventeen and a footnote. At the same time, the inability, through temperament or circumstance, to develop the powers of supersensible perception is not a barrier to the pursuit of spiritual science. While the truths of spiritual science can only be directly discovered and revealed by supersensory perception, this is not a necessity for the understanding and assimilation of its teaching. Indeed the unprejudiced consideration of the facts and truths revealed through higher knowledge provides one of the surest tests of their genuineness. If they are not rejected out of hand, as a result of prejudice or unfamiliarity but are taken not only into the mind but into the imagination and are considered with dispassionate reason and judgment and compared with other other known facts they commend themselves by their rational relationship to one another and to other known realities and by the solution they provide to many of the enigmas of human life and experience Indeed, the unprejudiced consideration of what is revealed is itself a way to higher knowledge. As Steiner expresses it, the principle only to recognize the existence of higher worlds when one has seen them is a hindrance in the way of this very seeing itself. The will, first of all, to understand through sound thinking what as yet is not seen, furthers that seeing it conjures forth important powers of the soul, which lead to the seeing of the seer. In and quote, from Theosophy, page 19. In the footnote, this path of the unprejudiced and patient consideration of the facts revealed in spiritual science, until by their rational significance and the illumination they bring to the problems of human existence, they lead to a conviction of their truth has been the path followed by the majority of those who call themselves anthroposophists. Many have found it for themselves. Many have found for themselves a path to the beginning of direct okay, excuse me, many have found it for themselves a path to the beginning of direct seeing. There are three directions in which the spiritual science of Rudolf Steiner can be distinguished from other occult movements, firstly, in its strict dependence upon the direct observation of spiritual reality, secondly, in its adherence to the scientific principle of rational thinking and clear judgment and its relation of the facts of spiritual discovery to those of physical knowledge and experience, and thirdly, in its attitude toward Christianity. We have already seen that the whole of Steiner's teaching and revelation was based upon his direct observation of supersensible realities, which revealed to him the spirit world, both in its own relationships and also as interpenetrating and working continuously in all physical reality. In presenting the truths of spiritual science, he was scrupulous in not going beyond the evidence of observed spiritual facts. He refused to build on them speculative theories and hypotheses after the manner of science and philosophy. He spent a long time, in some cases years, in meditation upon perceived spiritual facts before he definitely formulated or revealed to others his conclusions about them. He was familiar with the mystic teaching of the ancient world preserved for the most part in the great religions of the East and also with the lesser-known occult teaching of the West, and he was able to expound these uniquely in the light of his own spirit knowledge. But he knew that a revelation of spiritual reality that could fit in with the scientific spirit of the present age and which could relate itself to scientific knowledge and lead it to far wider realms of discovery, could not be based upon authoritative occult teaching, but only upon a direct observation of spiritual reality as scrupulously honest and factual as the methods of natural science itself. To this principle he unswervingly adhered. The second distinguishing feature of spiritual science, in its adherence to the scientific principle of rational thinking and clear judgment, is it? Excuse me. Let me read that again. The second distinguishing feature of spiritual science is its adherence to the scientific principle of rational thinking and clear judgment. We have seen how, by the development of sense-independent thinking, Steiner was able to use it as the instrument of spirit perception and to make it available at every level of spirit consciousness. Objection is raised to this claim of spiritual science to be a rational system, from two opposing sides, by natural scientists who claim that the facts of spiritual science cannot be proved by their own methods of logical thinking and experiment, and by occultists and mystics on the ground that thinking can never apprehend spiritual realities. These objections both make the same mistake of restricting thinking to the logical thinking adapted to earthly space and time consciousness, and to successional events. The whole experience of Steiner's path to higher knowledge is that of the successive metamorphosis of each stage of consciousness to that above it, involving in each case a metamorphosis of the method of apprehension. But at each level the apprehension is by quote-unquote thinking. Even the supreme level of intuition, where relationship itself is metamorphosed into being, is apprehended by this sense-free thinking. Indeed, intuition is itself the ultimate experience of knowing in mutual interpenetration of being. Far removed as the immediate and complete knowing of intuition is from the comparatively slow, step-by-step process of the logical thinking of physical consciousness, they are, both of them, thinking. But in intuition, the experience of thinking, is completely united with the experience of feeling and willing. It is the knowing of the whole being. It is in this scientific approach to spirit reality, through pure thinking, that spiritual science or anthroposophy is sharply distinguished from the official approach of the Theosophical Society and this was manifest even at the time when Rudolf Steiner worked within that movement. The Theosophical Society was concerned with the ancient wisdom of the East. Spiritual science was concerned with the same wisdom derived both from East and West, verified and added to by direct spiritual perception. At the same time of Mrs. Besant's title Ancient Wisdom, a revelation of the spiritual knowledge and methods of the ancient East appeared as a textbook of the Theosophical Society, Steiner published under the very title Theosophy, a rationally ordered account of man as a spiritual being and an explanation of his relationship to the three worlds of body. Soul and spirit. A certain section of the Theosophical Society attempted an approach to the science of that day by trying to relate spiritual realities to the latest scientific theories, positing, for example, a molecular theory of the etheric or a theory of a permanent atom as the connecting link between man's successive earth lives. With that sort of deference to scientific theory, Rudolf Steiner had no concern. He distrusted speculative theories in natural science and entirely abjured them in spiritual science. His aim was to discover by direct observation the scientific background of supersensible phenomena at their own level of spirit existence. And he was not concerned to make it conform to the theories of the natural science of physical phenomena. There was, however, for Steiner, a yet deeper and more direct relationship between natural science and the higher knowledge of spiritual science. It was not only that natural science had developed a factual and logical form of thinking, which, when it was used independently of sense perception, provided a reliable means of approach to higher levels of consciousness. The very concepts themselves of natural science provided a means of arriving at the spiritual perception of the origin and evolution of man and the universe, and in the most remote fields of this investigation they provided the only means. In his lectures entitled True and False Paths in Spiritual Investigation, which he gave in England only a few months before his death, Steiner sets out this fact very clearly and at considerable length. It is only possible here to give an abbreviation of his argument. He points out that most occult investigators, and amongst them Madame Blavatsky, penetrated only as far as the first sphere of spiritual reality, which he describes as the, quote, moon sphere, close quote, in which is revealed to higher knowledge the stage in the evolution of the earth which immediately preceded its present condition. To quote Steiner himself, You will find that in my book title, An Outline of Occult Science, I do not stop at the moon condition of the earth, that I go right back to the Saturn, the earliest condition. Other initiates lost interest and were even temporarily irritated at the suggestion that one should wish to advance further. They said, subquote, that is impossible, for you come to a boundary where there is an impenetrable veil. It was significant and interesting to understand the reason for this, which was that such initiates had an objection to, uh, an antipathy for, the knowledge proceeding from modes of conception connected with modern natural science. It was during these years, 1906 to 1909, when I was impregnating the conceptions of modern natural science in such a way as to bring them into the region where spiritual imaginations are to be found, that it first became possible for me to penetrate to the sun and Saturn conditions. I did not use these conceptions of modern natural science in the sense in which they were known to Hackle or Huxley, for example, but as an inner activity wherewith to cross this boundary, which had been laid down by initiates in an age when the modern natural scientific mode of thought did not yet exist. Into my book, title An Outline of Occult Science, there flowed what has really existed in man's mode of thought since the time of Copernicus, Galileo, and so forth, and which was so greatly deepened by Goethe. By bringing this mode of thinking into the same mood of soul that is otherwise present in imagination, it was possible to enter this region which has always been inaccessible to initiates." Close quote. There are two footnotes that were embedded in this long quote that I'm afraid I'm going to read afterward. They were they weren't able, I wasn't able to slide them in nicely. One was the, these designations of moon, uh, Saturn, etc. Footnote, these are the accepted designations of the successive spiritual stages in the evolution of the earth. They should be regarded merely as designations. End of that footnote. The next footnote, the fact of the existence of these earlier stages of earth evolution was accepted by these occultists. It was the possibility of penetrating to the experience of them which they disputed. End of second footnote. Continuing with Shepherd and Nicole. Only direct experience could fully reveal this process of spiritual investigation, but it is possible to approach to some understanding of it. It was not the speculative conclusions or theories of natural science that Steiner made the object of this special meditation. These were, for the most part, disproved for him immediately by his already achieved spiritual perception, as he declares in his autobiography, in regard to the effect of the materialistic conceptions of evolution, even upon his undergraduate mind. It was the facts discovered by the patient observation of scientists and the concepts irrefutably based on such facts that he used as the instruments of his spiritual investigation. Meditating intensely upon these facts and concepts against his lifelong knowledge of the spirit background of all existence, the imaginations awoke in him that led to his understanding of the earliest spirit-formed stages of the evolution of the earth. In the same way Goethe, convinced that the manifold forms of plant life had some supersensible explanation, and meditating with intense patience upon these forms and their visible relationships, arrived at the imagination of metamorphosis, and finally at the actual perception of the supersensible plant archetype. The ever increasing discoveries of science in physics, chemistry, biology, physiology, and other branches of modern knowledge could all of them be channels of further, of fuller, discovery of ultimate reality. If man would awaken in himself his latent faculties of spiritual perception. In some of the latest writings of leading scientists, one can almost trace a wistful consciousness of such a possibility. Footnote the quotations from Professor Heisenberg on some book and a footnote. When we perceive what a vital part the discoveries of modern science played in the development and application of steiner's own supersensible knowledge we begin to understand why he did not share the usual contempt of mystics for natural science but regarded it as the divinely ordained development of the human mind whereby it might attain direct knowledge of spiritual reality on the other hand we can realize how deeply he felt that a scientific thinking which with such possibilities interpreted all its discoveries in the light of a materialistic world outlook, and regarded its own activity not as evidence of man's nature as spirit, but only as the product of his physical evolution, was in dire need of that redemption from its aromonic bondage to matter which had been made possible by Christ. This brings us to the third direction in which Steiner differed from other esoteric teachers and in particular from the leaders of the Theosophical Society, namely in his attitude toward Christianity. The Theosophical Society was based upon the discovery of the ancient spiritual knowledge of the East, which it welcomed as presenting a spiritual interpretation of man and the universe in opposition to the materialism of natural science. This ancient knowledge the Theosophists declared to be the core of all the great world religions, including Christianity, and in this respect they regarded all religions as on the same level. But to the Christianity of the churches they were opposed, because in spite of its hope of immortality it offered no spiritual understanding of the nature of man's physical being and existence, and thus offered no vital opposition to scientific materialism. Moreover. Theosophy resented the exclusive claims of organized Christianity and its attitude to other religions as false. It had happened to Rudolf Steiner that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the quote, mystery of Golgotha, close quote, as he always spoke and wrote of it, had been made directly manifest to his spiritual perception. He saw and knew it as a mystical fact, that is, as the very deed of the spiritual world itself which fulfilled the dim presage, the wistful longing, and the eager expectation of the great religions of Judaism and the East. It did not deny, still less did it condemn them, but it transcended and embraced them as the fulfillment of their hope or vision. Moreover he saw that spirit deed as the fulcrum of human evolution, the redemption of man from bondage to matter, a redemption whose final stages still awaited realization. The overwhelming conviction of this spiritual vision and certainty is manifest in the Christocentric nature of all Steiner's teachings, teaching and in the many books and lectures which he devoted to the interpretation of the mystery of Golgotha. The three lecture courses which he gave on the very threshold of his collaboration with the Theosophical Movement titled From Buddha to Christ, Christianity as Mystical Fact, and titled Mysticism at the Dawn of the New Age of Thought, the last two of which were later published in book form, all bear evidence to the clear distinction which marked out his teaching from the official teaching of the Theosophical Society in regard to their attitude toward Christianity. It was on this ground, and also, though rather less consciously, on the ground of his direct scientific approach to spiritual reality, that after eight years of collaboration, in quotes, anthroposophy, and in quotes, theosophy, took separate paths. From the beginning of his association with the Theosophical Movement, Steiner was aware of this fundamental divergence, but he knew that this movement formed almost the only section of European humanity which was naturally disposed at that time to listen to his spiritual message, and he hoped in the declared freedom of teaching within the movement gradually to wean it to his point of view. He succeeded in this with countless individuals, but with the official movement it was not to be. The essential elements in Steiner's outlook are manifest in the general order of his lecturing and teaching. For the first years, Until about 1906, he concentrated on mastering, by spiritual vision, the facts of the spiritual world, and in setting out in his lectures their spiritually scientific background. He did not proceed by way of analogy with the findings of natural science, but by discovering, through direct observation, the rational relationships that exist in the spiritual world itself. For the next six years he was engaged in penetrating by spiritual observation to the deepest understanding of the mysteries of Christ's incarnation and of his deed of redemption, and in relating them to the whole of man's earthly history and spiritual evolution. Having thus presented the basic facts of spiritual science, the following years were spent in establishing the Anthroposophical Society as an independent movement, and in building at Dornach the Girtianum, as a center of anthroposophical research and teaching. The last years of his life were spent in applying the findings of spiritual science to the conclusions of natural science and to all human activities. In education, in in agriculture, in the healing of mind and body, in art, in social and economic relationships, new possibilities were formulated and in many cases set on foot. In all this, Steiner had a twofold aim. In the first place, he strove to shed as widely as possible over human life the light of the knowledge of the spirit realities working in man and the universe, and to correct the mistakes and misconceptions due to a materialistic outlook. But he also saw in all the practical applications of anthroposophy the best proof of the facts and concepts of spiritual science. Derived from supersensible perception. Here was applied the test of experimental working that is the recognized method of natural science. That these tests did not prove negative is shown by the fact that many of the activities then started have spread and are still flourishing, and by their practical results bear witness to the soundness of the teaching on which they are based. In spite of this evidence, There are many critics who deny that Steiner can in any way be spoken of as a scientist or anthroposophy as the science of spiritual reality. This denial is based on two mistaken assumptions. The first of these is the failure to see that a man's claim to be a scientist is not based upon his having proved conclusively all his hypotheses, but upon the method by which he arrives at and applies them. It is Steiner's unvarying method of basing his knowledge upon direct observation, tested by rational judgment, and correlated and further tested by application to known reality, that establishes his right to be called a scientist. In the second place, there is in this objection to the term spiritual science an apparent assumption that natural science is based upon absolutely proved theories and indisputably ascertained conclusions. This is a popular idea, but it is refuted by the writings of leading scientists. In his book titled The Nature of the Universe, Professor Fred Hoyle speaks of the conclusions by which natural science arrives at its conclusions. Excuse me, sorry, let me read that again. In his book titled The Nature of the Universe, Professor Fred Hoyle speaks of the methods by which natural science arrives at its conclusions and of their validity. Quote, the procedure in all branches of physical science whether in Newton's theory of gravitation, Maxwell's theory of electromagnetism, Einstein's theory of relativity, or the quantum theory, is at root the same. It consists of two steps. The first is to guess by some sort of inspiration a set of mathematical equations. The second step is to associate the symbols used in the equation with measurable physical quantities. But is there any direct proof of the principle of relativity? Unfortunately, no, for it is a characteristic of scientific method, that there can be no proof of this, but all experience up to date shows that relativity works. Close footnote from The Nature of the Universe, pages 5 and 6. End of footnote. A remarkable, indirect justification of the claim of spiritual science is to be regarded as a... Sorry again. A remarkable indirect justification of the claim of spiritual science to be regarded as a scientific approach to reality is given by Professor Werner Heisenberg, whose discovery of quote, the principle of indeterminacy close quote, played an important part in the establishment of nuclear physics. In doing this, it revealed the fact that the classical Newtonian physics, which had been regarded as universally valid, did not apply at a certain level of atomic reality. In his book titled Philosophic Problems of Nuclear Science, Professor Heisenberg speaks of the impossibility of proving the general theory of relativity, and yet of its extreme value as a scientific hypothesis. He illustrates this by reference to the teachings of Copernicus, whose theories were far less convincing than those at our disposal today in support of the general theory of relativity, The fact that it was not nonsensical to maintain that the earth moved round the sun proved enough to allow Galileo to mobilize the whole power of his genius behind Copernicus. Close quote, footnote from Philosophic Problems of Nuclear Science, pages 13 to 14. End of footnote. (laughs) Thus, the fact that it is not nonsensical is regarded as an adequate ground for the acceptance by natural science of an unproved hypothesis, to be tested by its working. Moreover, Professor Heisenberg, in his estimate of the new situation in human perception, and knowing, set up by the discoveries of nuclear physics, makes some observations on scientific assumptions that approach very nearly to the point of view and conclusions of spiritual science. Quote, the extension of scientific methods of thought, far beyond their legitimate limits of application, has led in the world, generally, to the much deplored division of ideas between the field of science on the one side and the fields of religion and art on the other. Close quote, same book. Again, he speaks of the need of new levels of consciousness in understanding the phenomena of life. Quote, we cannot assume such simple propositions as biology relates to chemistry as chemistry to physics. It would probably be more correct to say that a completely new level of perception and understanding has to be achieved in the transition from an aspect of reality already understood to one still new. We probably understand now better than before that there exist, apart from the phenomena of life, still other aspects of reality, that is, consciousness, and finally mental processes. We cannot expect that there should be a direct link between our understanding of the movement of bodies in time and space and of the processes of the mind. Close quote. Same book. <coughs> Again, quote, The edifice of exact science can hardly be looked upon as a consistent and coherent unit in the naive way we had hoped. The advance from the parts already completed to those newly discovered, are to be newly erected, or to be newly erected demands each time an intellectual jump, which cannot be achieved through the simple development of already existing knowledge. When faced with essentially new intellectual challenges, we should continually follow the example of Columbus, who possessed the courage to leave the known world, in the almost insane hope of finding land again beyond the sea." Finally, quote, we shall serve the future best by at least easing the way for the newly won methods of thought, rather than by combating them because of the unfamiliar difficulties they have created. Perhaps it is not too rash to hope that new spiritual forces will again bring us nearer to the unity of a scientific concept of the universe which has been so threatened during the last decades. This lecture was delivered in 1934, and thus within ten years of Rudolf Steiner's death, a pioneer of scientific thought, aware of the unexpected vistas of knowledge which had opened up to science, was advocating an open-mindedness toward the possibility of new levels of consciousness, which contrasts with the complacent incredulity that is shown even today by minds still imprisoned in the now disproved assumptions of classical Newtonian physics. Rudolf Steiner returned from his Columbus voyage across uncharted seas, bringing with him evidence of new realms of reality, open to higher levels of consciousness and perception, and directly relatable to known physical reality. The fact that the principles of spiritual science are presented not as assumed hypotheses, but as the result of direct, supersensory perception, does not make them less worthy of being considered and tested. Not only have they been applied in many activities, but they have also been subjected to critical scientific examination and comparison. Footnote: See title Man and Animal by Hermann Poppelbaum, title The Etheric Formative Forces in the Cosmos, Earth and Man, and title The Etheric World in Science, Art and Religion by Günter Wachsmut, title The Plant Between Sun and Earth by George Adams and all of which are titled man or matter by Ernst and a footnote <laughs> it is manifest that if human thinking could arrive at the direct perception of higher knowledge or at an understanding of the expression of it in spiritual science it would be redeemed from its bondage to the physical senses and from the illusion which seeks ultimate reality only under material form its knowledge would be illumined by new and vivid concepts of the spiritual nature of man and of his origin and destiny, of the true understanding of evolution and of the meaning of history, of the true relation of man's spiritual and physical being to the whole cosmos which surrounds him. This is the redemption of thinking which Steiner declares is offered to mankind. While, however, it may be possible to conceive of such a redemption of human thinking. It still remains to explain Steiner's statement that this redemption has only been made possible by and can only rightly be achieved through Christ. (laughs) The task of convincing his fellow men of the reality of the spiritual and the possibility of higher knowledge did not appear to Steiner at first as in any way a religious problem that connection only arose later out of that personal spiritual discovery to which we have already referred. One of the consequences of the development of his own powers of clairvoyant thinking had been that, as Spinoza had predicted, he became aware of the whole range of human evolution, in which he perceived that the guiding principle had been the evolution of the human soul through the millennia of mankind's earthly history. He saw it as a gradual descent from an unself conscious, innate awareness of the spirit world with only a dim awareness of physical phenomena to an ever-increasing logical awareness of the physical world with an almost complete loss of spiritual clairvoyance. This enlightening clue to the meaning of history is one of the most invaluable contributions to human knowledge that Rudolf Steiner gave out of his spiritual perception. This inner psychic principle of evolution links together the long succession of the rise and fall of civilizations with their slow periods of decay and their sudden bursts of new life. Just as the spiritual understanding of the being of man interprets the systole and diastole of his earthly existence. All we can consider here are some indications of this evolution in human consciousness. In the earlier stages of this descent, man's link with the spiritual world and its working was maintained by the great mystery centers, in which, in secret, the spiritual leaders of each age kept alive the true spiritual understanding of the universe and of the origin and destiny of mankind. And there is an appendix also in this, uh, on the web here, and it's, there's a footnote here, see Appendix, Mystery Centers, page 179. So later in the book I will read that. End of footnote. In every age, men qualified by character and by long preparation were initiated into this mystery knowledge. In this initiation, a man was raised in a state of trance to a higher level of consciousness in which he became aware of the spirit world and of his own being as existing in and related to it. This was a direct soul experience of spiritual reality, but it was not a conscious, personal relationship to the beings of the spirit world. Indeed, man had not at that time in his physical consciousness a self-conscious relationship as an individual to other individuals such as we now experience. He felt himself linked to them only by the wider relationships which he shared with them the family, the tribe or the race, and he felt his own being as having its actual existence only in these wider entities. During the last eight centuries before the coming of Christ, Man more and more lost this ancient power of penetrating through the veil of his physical existence and becoming aware of his higher self. Even the mystery centers, in many places, had lost the power of recreating in man true spiritual vision and were falling into decadence. The awakening consciousness of thought in the early Greek thinkers and later in Plato still possessed some measure of supersensible perception and to a lesser extent this was also true of Aristotle. But after Aristotle it died away. Conscious now of nothing but the life of physical experience, man eventually came to identify himself with it. If he sought to penetrate behind his physical consciousness and sense experience, he encountered only a void where in past days man had found the reality of his spiritual being. This was due to the fact that his awakening ego-consciousness found its realization entirely in his expanding physical experience, so that he felt that apart from the physical there could only be an empty or shadowy existence. It was necessary for man's spiritual evolution that he should develop an individual ego-consciousness, for only in so doing would he be able fully to enter into his true relationship to the divine. This individual ego consciousness, however, could only be developed out of his ever-deepening experience of the physical world, yet in developing it he inevitably lost his awareness of the spirit world. This was the impasse with which man was faced and in which he seemed to be overwhelmed. In his perception of the historical evolution of mankind, Steiner became objectively aware of the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He describes this experience in his autobiography in words which carry conviction by their direct simplicity. I stood before the mystery of Golgotha in a most inward, most solemn festival of knowledge. (coughs) From that moment, He saw, as the supreme event of man's spiritual evolution and earthly history, that in Jesus of Nazareth, the cosmic Christ descended into the physical life of humanity on the very threshold of its deepest penetration into matter, when, already, its spirit consciousness had almost died away, in order to provide it with the spiritual forces to carry it safely through that stage to lift it upward again to its true spirit goal. Christ's redemption of mankind manifested itself to Steiner as a threefold deed. In the first place it was wrought in relation to the spirit world, in combating and defeating the spiritual powers which were the enemies of mankind. In the next place it was directed to the physical environment in which man lived, the created world delivering it from the disintegrating effects wrought by human sin finally it was wrought in the being of man himself this again was achieved in the threefold way man's conviction of his spiritual nature environment and destiny had to be re established man's soul nature had to be delivered from the destructive forces of evil by redemption from the power of sin and the fear of death. Finally, for the future of humanity, a spiritual impulse had to be implanted in man that would enable him in acquiring his knowledge of the physical world so to develop his ego consciousness that in due time it might bring him to a conscious experience of his own higher self and of the spirit world. It was in this light that Steiner saw and understood the mystery of Volgotha. By his descent into the world of physical experience, Christ brought to the earthbound consciousness of mankind himself the fount and archetype of man's higher self, the light that lighteth every man as he comes into the world. By his death and resurrection, he released into the world spiritual powers that were mightier than the down-dragging forces of egoism and materialism, and proved that that self of which man becomes aware in his physical life is not brought to an end by death, but can rise through death to a higher life. Moreover, by the gift of the Spirit, whereby men learned to feel his presence within them, quote, Christ in me, close quote, St. Paul called it, men began to experience what they describe as the, quote, new birth, close quote. They felt, that by the Christ within them their inner being had been miraculously changed from its bondage to sin and the physical world into a certain hope and a partial anticipation of an eternal destiny beyond death as a spirit being, a son of God. Man had not recovered his lost consciousness of his spirit origin, but he had gained a conviction of a spirit future. Man's thinking would have to sink yet more deeply into the realm of matter, but by his relationship to the Christ within him a real metamorphosis was wrought in his feeling and devotion, transforming them to a higher level. Thereby there was created within him the possibility of reawakening to consciousness of his higher self inasmuch as he felt that his soul, the inner core of his earthly experience, was, to Christ, destined to immortality. It was this relationship to the Christ, very often dimly understood, and for the most part very imperfectly realized, but maintained by the faith and sacraments of the Christian Church, that brought Western humanity through the Dark Ages and later to the still deeper penetration into matter of its awakening ego-consciousness in the discoveries of natural science. For man's ego consciousness in its awakening found expression for itself in the Christian belief in the immortality of the soul and in the love of God for every man. In the last four centuries the situation has gradually changed. Today man's discoveries have become so vast and their potentialities so alluring that his ego-consciousness is entirely absorbed in them. And once again he tends to regard the physical world as his senses and reason perceive it, as the whole field of his possible experience. Whether or not he still cherishes a faith in or hope of a higher form of consciousness beyond the grave, the mind of most men is closed to the possibility of altering the level of man's consciousness during his earthly life or to the presence within him of any higher form of self than that of which he is so supremely conscious in his physical experience. All this Steiner perceived directly in clairvoyant meditation, but he perceived something more. He perceived that the present spiritual impasse which humanity has reached is calling for the yet higher redemptive powers of Christ which are waiting to be used. Man's thinking, having become wholly absorbed in the material and denying itself any concern with the supersensible, and having in most people discarded the traditional religious beliefs on which it had formerly rested, an absolute division has arisen in man's soul between secular thinking and religion, which he is powerless to bridge. It is man's thinking that now needs to be redeemed. By transformation to a higher level of consciousness through the development of the latent powers of his soul. In this way man can be lifted from the murk of sense to direct and conscious awareness of his spiritual being and his spiritual environment, and to direct personal relationship to the spiritual world and to spiritual beings. Although this final stage of man's redemption had been prepared and made possible by Christ's deed on Golgotha, it had to wait nineteen hundred years for man's complete descent into the knowledge and experience of the physical world. For man could regain his lost heritage and advance to a higher spiritual level only in the freedom of full individual consciousness. And it was only by the development of logical thinking that such consciousness could be attained. Moreover, as we have seen, it is by the development and metamorphosis of this very instrument of scientific thinking that has imprisoned man in matter that man must attain to spiritual consciousness today. It is not by a mystic experience which divorces itself from reason and despises logic that man will return to his spiritual heritage, but by the path of pure concentrated thinking, in which logic is never contradicted, although it is finally transcended in an experience which, though at a much higher level, is still fully conscious knowledge. For it is in his thinking that man is most conscious and it is by the transformation of his thinking that he can rise to a higher level of consciousness. More and more Steiner came to realize how entirely this transformation of human thinking was dependent upon Christ's redemptive work and also how it would be illumined by it. In the first place he knew from his own experience that in the transformation of consciousness the relation of the mystery of Golgotha to the life and destiny of mankind, would become clear to man's thinking, and in so doing would restore to man the understanding of his true relation to the divine spiritual world, a knowledge which would no longer be dependent only upon faith. Secondly, Steiner had discovered for himself that at this level, human thinking entered a realm where it became objectively aware of the reality of moral values in such a way that man acquired a new and compelling motive for realizing them footnote see page 104 or yeah i'm sorry footnote see page 104 of this book end of footnote in this way the redemption of thinking would become also a moral redemption another stage in the reversal of the fall which was the purpose of Christ's coming. Moreover, Steiner saw that the very process of raising thinking to a higher level could only be safely achieved if man developed those moral values of reverence, selflessness, love and sincerity which Christ had given to the world in the Sermon on the Mount as the laws of the Kingdom of Heaven. (laughs) Thus he saw that in giving these laws Christ was preparing the way for man's conscious return to his spiritual home. But there is a further direction in which the transformation of human thinking is dependent upon the redemptive work of Christ. While it is vitally true that such a transformation can be achieved only by individual human effort, this does not imply that the redemption of man's thinking is wholly in his own hands. It is in regard to this very point that Steiner reveals a most essential part of Christ's work. It is, he tells us, a universal experience of those who seek today to rise to higher knowledge that they experience the intensity of their ego as dangerously exaggerated. This was not so in ancient initiation, in which the seeker for initiation found his undeveloped ego consciousness dimmed in the presence of the reality of spirit. But with the intense development of ego consciousness today, this experience is reversed. It is only by the essential Christian experience of Christ in me that this transformation of thinking can rightly and safely be approached. Footnote, C. Rudolf Steiner, Title, Knowledge of the Christ, Through Anthroposophy, pages 34-35, to end of footnote. To understand this, we must bear in mind the fundamental difference between the consciousness of the lower self and that of the higher self, a difference inherent in the nature of the spiritual and physical worlds. Put briefly, in the spiritual world, all things exist, excuse me, all beings exist in endless relationships to one another, far closer and more interpenetrating than the detached relationships of earth. In these relationships their being consists. In such a condition of existence it would be almost impossible for a being which had not self consciousness to acquire it. He would not be able to detach the consciousness of his own being from its absorption into the consciousness of the higher beings to which he was related. To become self conscious the relationships would have to be broken down in his consciousness into the entities which were which were therein related. Fully to develop this would take us beyond the scope of this epilogue, but it is possible to see here the purpose and significance of the physical world. Just as, quote, interpenetration, close quote, is the keynote of the spiritual world, so, quote, separateness, close quote, is the keynote of the physical world. By the conditions of time and space under which man lives in the physical world, he finds his being and his consciousness separated from that of his fellow man, and his ego consciousness awakes in his awareness of the polarities of his physical existence, subject and object, I and thou, spirit and matter, percept and idea. Man has become conscious of himself in his separateness, and it is the right relation of that separated self to other separated selves which constitutes the vital social problem of our day. Now if man, by the development of thinking, raises this separated ego consciousness of his lower self to consciousness of the vastly extended realities of the spirit world It can only result in that dangerous exaggeration of the ego of which Steiner speaks, in that Nietzschean megalomania, which is so often manifest in esoteric movements. There are two directions in which this ego exaggeration might develop, and it was in view of these that Steiner spoke of the danger of easy and quick paths to clairvoyance that did not involve the transformation of character. On the one hand, the discovery of supersensory realities and of the nature of his own spiritual being might lead a man into a luciferic sense of spiritual self-sufficiency which turned its back upon the physical life. (laughs) Such an exaggerated, self-centered spirit consciousness could only destroy itself, for it would deny itself the possibility of any further spiritual evolution which for man is bound up with his earthly existence. On the other hand, the materialistically minded ego might regard these new-found spiritual faculties solely as a means to the advancement of man's earthly power or comfort. Already there are indications of supersensible powers being so regarded and used. This aramonic temptation would lead man into the depths of evil, and would imprison him more completely in his material existence, both in this world and the next. For he would carry with him, beyond death, the conviction that supersensible realities only had significance for the physical existence, which he had now lost. And this conviction would prevent him from grasping the independent reality of the spirit world. This would constitute a second death, the death of the spirit. Again and again Steiner warns us of all this as an imminent danger of our time. Here we find a vital element in Christ's redemptive work. In Him the Divine Spirit lived in human physical form, endured the suffering and sorrow and sin which the forces of evil had brought into it, and triumphing over the dreaded grave of death, which to man's earthbound thinking appeared to be the certain end of his existence, secured for the physical being of humanity its spiritual destiny. The risen Christ is, quote, the first begotten from the dead, close quote, quote, the first fruits of creation, close quote, quote, the full stature of man, close quote, as he at last will be. As the ancient mysteries revealed the fact of man's spiritual origin, so the empty grave and the risen Christ were a mystery of the future, revealing man's spiritual destiny and providing the possibility of realizing it. For the risen Christ is to man not only the prototype of his perfection, but the power to achieve it. By his gift of the Spirit, Christ brought himself the source and fount of man's higher ego, into that relationship of love and devotion with man's dawning ego consciousness, which expressed itself in the experience, quote, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. Quote. Thereby he brought the true spirit experience of the higher self into the experience of the lower self and he expanded this into all human relationships in teaching man to love his neighbor as himself. The new Christian commandment of love is the bringing of the reality of the higher self in its true relationships into the life of the lower self. This is an unconscious rediscovery of the higher self that is waiting to be brought into full consciousness. Meanwhile, it is only those in whom, by their relationship to Christ, it has become a way of life who can truly and safely raise themselves by the development of their thinking into the conscious experience of the spirit world. For only through the Christ-redeemed ego excuse me for only the Christ-redeemed ego will find itself at home in the spirit world. It is this fact that Steiner had in mind when he said at the close of these lectures, quote, The unredeemed human reason could never raise itself into the spiritual world. It is only the redeemed human reason which possesses the true relationship to the Christ that can win its way into the world of spirit. To enter the kingdom of the spirit in this way is the Christianity of the 20th century. Close quote. These words cannot be taken too literally. Man cannot raise himself to the spiritual world by his own powers alone. It is as Spinoza said and as Steiner found. Spirit comes to meet man as he strivingly seeks for the redemption of his thinking. The seeming polarity of Pelagianism and Augustinianism is resolved into a unity in in which human effort and divine salvation are seen to partake of one another and yet to be themselves. <laughs> in a lecture entitled Easter, the Mystery of the Future, Steiner describes how this deeper understanding of the mystery of Christianity will unite again religion, art and science. <laughs> Quote, to know Christ in this way means to know man as a spiritual being. To be filled with this Christ idea means that in the future, Christianity itself will be transcended as mere religion and will be carried as knowledge to infinite horizons. It will also permeate art, broadening and inspiring it, and will bestow in abundance the power of artistic creation. Christianity will flow into all life and activity on the earth. Close quote. In this new discovery of the Christ, man realizes that in reality he has never been alone, that Christ, having awakened by his deed of love the response of man's heart, has never left the sphere of man's earthly pilgrimage. His powers have not only worked on man's feeling and devotion and in the unconscious depths of his organism, they have also been present in the conscious striving of his thinking in the self-sacrifice and sincerity and brilliant achievements of scientific discovery, waiting in everlasting patience for the day when human thinking will discover its full potentialities and re-enter the sphere of its true activity. Steiner describes in striking words this direct experience of Christ in the ascent to higher knowledge, "...for those who will lift themselves to initiation science there opens up, as they rise from inspiration to intuition, a spiritual world, which contains the mystery of Golgotha as the mighty consolation within the whole world's existence. Close quote. Footnote from Knowledge of the Christ through Anthroposophy, page 39. End of footnote. It will not be imagined, of course, that Steiner conceived that this redemption of thinking could be achieved in a moment. That the thinking of all mankind could immediately be metamorphosed into direct supersensible experience. It is nearly two thousand years since the transformation of the human heart and will was first experienced. Yet what proportion of mankind has attained to it? Some have attained, and by their example and the fruit of their lives, the Christian ideal remains a living force and in many directions the general level of human behavior has been raised. So it would be with the redemption of thinking. The way is open to all, but it is a difficult way that calls for intense effort and perseverance. Some will tread it and arrive at the transformation of their thinking, but it will be possible for all to gain a new conception of the significance of thought in the light of its revealed possibilities and to take into practical account in their thinking the new understanding of man and the world, which spiritual science imparts. This would be a redemption of thinking open to all, and it would affect more than the life of mankind. It is not to man only that the redemption of thinking will bring new possibilities, but to the whole created world in which he lives. As St. Paul said, Creation itself suffers because man has had to find his own way to the understanding of it. By the new understanding that Rudolf Steiner was able to give out of his own transformed experience, there are already all sorts of human activities and spheres of life which are being renewed and brought to fresh possibilities. It is impossible to visualize what might happen, if even a small part, of the vast range of modern scientific thinking were to catch this vision and lift itself to the level of supersensible perception. One of the great creative leaps in the evolution of man would take place. The redemption of human thinking to a higher level is not the denial or disparagement of man's physical life, it is no luciferic attempt to lift man to a purely supersensible existence. On the contrary, it would give man a realization of the significance and necessity of physical existence for his eternal destiny, and by revealing its true spiritual background, inspire and enable him to live in it as a being of body, soul, and spirit, in true relationship with his earthly environment and his fellow men. Every new stage of development or discovery in the history of humanity has had to overcome the unwillingness of its age to believe in its possibility, or even its desirability. So it is with spiritual science today. But of one thing there can be no doubt. If its claims are true, it is the most urgent necessity of our time. It is not a system of thought that bases itself upon logical argument, nor a new religion that seeks believers, nor a mystic experience that defies criticism. It is a path of fully conscious experience which guides the spiritual in man to the spiritual in the universe. It offers an understanding of the world and of human life that can be tested by its own inner consistency and its applicability to known fact. Its ultimate proof is in the experience of it. Its immediate test is in the answers it offers to the riddles of human existence. Ceaselessly, for twenty-five years, Rudolf Steiner called men and women to awake out of the slumber of matter. Thirty years have passed since he died, and we have reached the midpoint of our century, of which we spoke again and again as a time of great crisis and danger for the human race, unless it awoke to the realities of the spirit by the transformation of human thinking. The sense of human helplessness and bewilderment in face of the vast material forces which scientific thinking is releasing is today greater than ever. It expresses itself in a frantic allegiance to one or other of the rival ideologies, born out of man's absorption in his material existence. Will not men and women have the courage and faith to venture on this new and as yet almost untrodden path of Christ's redemption of human thinking, from the prison of the senses to spiritual vision and understanding? In his play, titled Asleep of Prisoners, Christopher Fry sounds this challenge to humanity. Quote, the human heart can go to the lengths of God. Dark and cold we may be, but this is no winter now. The frozen misery of centuries breaks, cracks, begins to move, the thunder is the thunder of the flows, the thaw, the flood, the upstart spring. Thank God our time is now, when wrong comes up to face us everywhere, never to leave us till we take the longest stride of soul men ever took. Affairs are now soul-size. The enterprise is exploration into God. Where are you making for? It takes so many thousand years to wake, but will you wake for pity's sake? Close quote. The end of the epilogue by A.P. Shepard and um, her name is Mildred Robertson Nicole.